We return to 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 7 in just a few moments. I want to welcome you as well to this gathering of Subarode Baptist Church. We are his people. The church is a people. And we are gathered under his name in his presence, promised by his spirit that he is meeting with us. So we rejoice to be together this morning. I appreciated Bruce's admonition that we don't focus on ourselves and our worries, but our passage this morning directly calls us to consider how God wants us to deal with our anxieties. So I begin with a question that will bring those back to your mind for just a moment. What cares or worries did you carry with you into this gathering this morning? The admonition came that we not let those overwhelm us. It was given because we know that often they do. They're often ever present in our lives, on our hearts, in our minds. What are the issues that wake you up in the middle of the night and cause you repeated nights of sleeplessness? Or come to your mind even when you're supposed to be focused on something else? What worries or anxieties are currently weighing on your heart and mind? One of the things that Peter is doing in this section of his letter is helping us to think of our responsibilities to one another. And that would be good for us to do as well. So just consider the anxieties of your church family, your brothers and sisters sitting around you. Think of all that's present here with us this morning. There are members around you deeply concerned about all the social and political upheaval constantly swirling around us. All the many opinions about how to think about the decisions being made or the decisions that aren't being made. There are some overwhelmed by the burdens of caring for ailing parents. That burden gets more and more difficult physically, emotionally, psychologically every single day. Perhaps they're wondering, what's the next step? Can I keep going this way? There are some in our body that are carrying the grief of having lost a loved one recently. Others are extremely lonely. Certainly there are many deeply concerned with their last doctor's visit and what the information they received means for their future. Parents are fearful for their children, deeply concerned for them, recognizing that they may be choosing a path of sin and sorrow rather than following Christ. Some in our church family are struggling with life-dominating sins or guilt from past sin struggles. What we're recognizing is that life is difficult in a sin-cursed earth. Our lives are difficult. Your brothers and sisters in Christ struggle with hardship. And we're constantly facing challenges that would cause us to take our eyes off of Christ. To bring them down to this earth and to our problems and our anxieties. Now what if I told you that the answer to all of the anxieties and worry that we carry in our lives was humility? Would you believe that's the right answer? 
Is that the answer you would tend to come up with? Does that make sense? Does it offend you? How does humility relate to our anxieties? What remedy does Peter provide to believers, to us, who are facing ever-increasing hostility and hardship in life? Let's look at our text together this morning. We'll read verses 5 through verse 7. This is the word of our God. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Let's ask for God's blessing as we look at this text together this morning. Father, we come before you recognizing our need. Lord, this moment in our week is meant for us to again bow the knee to the King of Kings. To hear him speak. To hear him talk into our lives. Help us to recognize that you know our lives, our needs, the remedies far better than we do. So help us to hear him and obey him, submit to him and love him. In Jesus' name, amen. This letter certainly acknowledges that Christians have cares, doesn't it? They are many and often varied in nature. And this is certainly the case for Peter's original audience. Suffering is mentioned in this book over and over again. It's mentioned directly at least 16 times. And in this text, our text before us, Peter will make a connection between how we view the pressures of this life and the remedy that humility before our God provides. These verses are overwhelmingly God-centered, and I hope that you will see that. I hope that through all of this instruction, that you will recognize the kindness and care of God for you in these words. God calls his people in this passage, God calls his people in their suffering to humble themselves under his mighty hand. This morning we'll consider these three verses based on the three commands we find here in the text. Put your eyes back down on these verses. Look at them in your Bible. Do you see them? The first command, be subject to the elders. The second, clothe yourselves with humility. And the third, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So what this passage calls us to ask is what does humility look like in the church? What does it look like? You see how humility is the main concern that Peter addresses in these verses? They're related to three differing groups, those three commands. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, why do you think humility is so important to Peter in this moment of outside hostility and pressure in the lives of these believers? Why is humility the thing he focuses on? Well, isn't it true that when we are facing stress in our lives, our relationships with our loved ones are also strained? Our relationship with the Lord is also being put to the test. 
It's easy for us to question him, isn't it? Consider Job. Consider Jesus in the garden. Peter is telling us that it is especially important for God's people to humble themselves before their leaders, before each other, and before their God. So first, humble submission to leadership. Verse 5 begins with a connection to what we saw in verses 1 through 4. Peter writes, likewise, that is, just as the elders are called to, to humility and service as your examples, they're not to lord their authority over you, so you who are younger... Be subject to those elders. Peter's instructing the church in their mutual responsibilities to one another. Peter gives this first command specifically to those who are younger. And that, that can be kind of confusing actually. Who, who are these who are younger? Is there a certain group of people that were to understand this to be? Does this mean that the congregation is to submit themselves to all the older men in the congregation? How would we know what age that is? What does it mean to be older? Well, that doesn't seem to make sense or fit the context. So it's not likely just a reference to age, older men. It makes the most sense of this address to conclude that the younger here is referring specifically to the younger men in the congregation and more generally to the entire congregation. If the elders are those who are spiritually mature, the younger are those who are less mature. It seems best to adopt this view because verse 1 clearly has the office of elder in view. Secondly, the word likewise means that Peter is continuing with this same topic of relationships between leaders and those that they lead. And finally, the command to be subject to the elders means more than just showing respect or deference to those who are more advanced in age. It's submitting to their delegated authority. It's obeying. This is the way the use the word has been used, submit or be subject throughout Peter's letter. So it would be most consistent to see it that way. Commentator Peter David writes, it appears best to see the younger here as the youthful people in the church or those who are less mature. Such younger people are often junior leaders, ready to learn from and assist those directing the church. But their very readiness for service and commitment can sometimes make them impatient with their leaders, who either due to pastoral wisdom or the conservatism that comes with age are not ready to move as quickly as those younger people are. We can understand that warning, can't we? I mean, just consider how often we hear of disagreements We've heard of disunity between believers in the church during the pandemic of recent years. That's an outside pressure that caused people to be not quite in sync. Caused members to sometimes within churches, we didn't feel this pressure quite as much, but sometimes caused them to say, you're not handling this the right way. Caused them to doubt the wisdom of their leaders. And the point overall is that hardship and stress create an ideal environment for disunity through pride. That's what Peter is addressing. So one pastor wisely applies this verse stating, The best training a Christian young man can have in preparation for church leadership is first learn to submit to those that are over them. 
A spiritually eager young man can gain invaluable wisdom and leadership skills through the experience of older godly men, even if they are not paragons of leadership excellence. Peter's commanding submission, even when you may not agree with a certain course of action. And doesn't that fit with what we saw last week? We're not talking about perfect churches with perfect members, with perfect leaders. We're talking about imperfect, sinful people who rely on the chief shepherd and continue to work at their relationships with that framework in mind. Certainly, there's always recourse to talk with a leader with whom you have questions or you're not sure about their decisions. But a submissive and humble spirit is commanded here. And elsewhere in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Pray that they would keep that in mind. That they wouldn't be distracted by figuring out all the things that are happening on this horizontal plane. That they wouldn't believe that if they get all the programs just right, then we can change hearts. Pray that they would see that they're watching over souls. They understand the weight of their responsibility. Hebrews 13 goes on as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There's mutual submission. Consider the humility and submission of Jesus Christ. If any young man who ever lived on this earth had the right to put himself above his elders, it was Jesus. He was able to debate scholars of the law at age 12. He certainly knew more than they did. And yet the scripture is clear that he patiently and humbly submitted to mere men. The point isn't whether your leaders are perfect. He resisted taking leadership before God's appointed time. He's content to serve his family in obscurity until God deemed it time for his ministry to begin. And as it was for Christ our Lord, so it is for every one of his followers. We're to be known for submission and humility in a world marked by rebellion and pride. The world has a legitimate critique of us. When we don't rely on the spirit, when we look just like every other human worldly organization where we're fighting and bickering. And the remedy is to each of us see ourselves as sinners in need of grace. That's what Peter's aiming at, humility. Peter keeps the church in perfect balance here, doesn't he? We just saw in that previous passage that pastors are not infallible. They're still growing in grace. They're to recognize that they are sheep as well as under shepherds. They're to be models of humility and servant leadership and growth in grace. God's provided them, though, as a blessing to the church. So no matter what issue is on the table, humility is always required in our interactions with one another. We see that explicitly now in the second command. We see humble interactions commanded with one another. The command for God's people is to clothe themselves in the garments of a slave. It's a picturesque word. Clothe yourselves. It's the picture that Peter is painting for us. 
clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And he says, clothe yourselves, all of you. Church body, this is your demeanor. This is your clothing. The term humility speaks of an attitude which puts others first, which thinks of another's desires, needs, and ideas as more worthy of attention than our own. That is a difficult calling, isn't it? That's beyond us humanly. Paul gives us this same admonition in Philippians 2. Do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We can imagine that Peter has in his mind that scenario we heard in our scripture reading from John 13. Jesus takes a towel and puts it on as a humble slave would do. And John makes this incredible statement just before he tells us what Jesus does. He says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, knowing that he was going back to God, he then prepares himself for this menial task of a servant. Now, why that's significant to me is he knows the great anguish he's about to face. It's clearly on his mind, and yet he's not preoccupied with himself, but with the service of sinful men instead. That is so not like me. When I have something I want to accomplish, something on my mind, that's the easiest time for me to be impatient or short or arrogant or harsh. Don Carson writes of this scene, the disciples could not conceive of washing one another's feet since this was a task normally reserved for the lowliest of menial servants. Peers did not wash another's feet except very rarely and as a mark of great love. Yet with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected Jesus to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer. This is your chief shepherd's model of humility for how we're to treat one another in a body. Do you see how that would change the outside world's view of how Christians are, of the power of Christ within us to interact even in the midst of of pressure and hostility and hardship. That's not normal. What is the dress code of Christ's church? According to this command, it's the clothing of humility. What is then humility? How do we get our minds around this concept? It's it's more of an attitude than an action. What is humility? For the believer, humility is a right understanding of who God is and who I am as a sinner before him. It's looking at how God describes me as a sinner deserving his eternal wrath against my sin full in the face. I have to know how God sees me as a sinner. That humbles me. He knows the deepest, darkest corners of my heart. 
And he tells me what it deserves. That is humbling. And yet even to a greater degree, knowing the depths of my sinfulness, he loves me more than any other entity in the universe could ever love me, even to the point where he sacrificed his son. There's nothing that will humble you like these gospel truths. Do you understand how the gospel reorients your view of who you are? It should then reorient your view of your brother and sister in Christ. Luke 18 immediately comes to my mind when I think of humility. In the story of the publican and the Pharisee, the Pharisee has a very horizontal view of himself and others, doesn't he? He's just looking across the room. In his pride, he's continually comparing himself with others. This is the common tool of pride in our hearts. When we want to feel superior, we look at a neighbor, a sibling, a fellow member, and we magnify their faults in order to highlight that we're not struggling in the same way. We can even couch it in nice religious terms. I'm thankful I don't struggle like them. Thanks, God. When we want to feel sorry for ourselves, we locate someone who is in our infinite or rather our finite perspective seemingly doing better than us. And we conclude life is just not fair. But this is also pride because it's still preoccupied with self as central. And yet in Luke 18, in that story, Jesus is praising true humility as having eyes only for God himself. Think of the difference between these two men. It's a difference of focus. The publican prays, God be merciful to me, the sinner. In that prayer, there's no one else around. It's just him and God. C.S. Lewis rightly concludes in mere Christianity, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's demonstrated in the publican's prayer. He's ultimately concerned with God not himself. I also heard this definition this week and found it convicting and extremely practical. Humility has been been defined as having a low opinion of your opinion. Having a low opinion of your own opinion. That's a very convicting definition, isn't it? Because by nature... I have a really high opinion of my opinion. I've thought about my opinion for a while. It's mine. If only you knew what I know. If only you did things the way I would do them. Proverbs 13.10 warns us, By pride comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. By pride comes nothing but strife. This verse works backward as a formula. If there's strife in my life, in my relationships, in the church, what can I rightly conclude from that verse? Pride is the culprit. Pride is the culprit. Consider how truly valuable the gift of listening is to another brother or sister in the church. We love to have friends who listen to us. But are you such a friend? Now, why does God oppose the proud? 
more directly, why does God oppose my pride? When I'm choosing pride, I'm choosing to trust myself. I'm choosing to elevate myself. I'm choosing truly to worship myself. The humble trust in God and God delights in being trusted. That's truth. That's what should be happening all the time. It's a delusion that I should be at the center. It's foolishness. But the human heart is deceitful. And our pride reveals that we seek glory for ourselves. God must, he must oppose such attitudes, thoughts, and actions. Now, Peter not only provides us with the commands to be humble, he also in these verses provide us with several motivations. We should pursue humility because God opposes our pride. And we need to understand what that verb oppose really means. Because it should put us in greater fear of God, reverence and respect and awe. And yes, even being afraid of arguing with him, of fighting against him. The word for opposed does not just mean that he stands firm like a well-built wall of defense. No, it means that he is actively fighting against your pride. He resists it. It means he lines up against it to defeat it. He stands as the enemy of your pride. In Proverbs 6, 16, Solomon tells us that there are six things that God hates. Six things that he is opposed to in every way. You know which one is first on the list? Pride. That's the negative side of it. God opposes the proud. But the positive, compelling motivation is that God stands ready and eager to give you grace. That's what he wants for you. He's saying, make the right choice. Thomas Schreiner wisely notes, smooth relations in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. When believers recognize that they are humans and sinners, they are less apt to be offended by others. When others treat them like servants. When others treat them like sinners. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Pride gets upset when another does not follow our suggestions. That's having a high opinion of your own opinion. Matthew Henry adds, humility is the great preserver of peace and order in all Christian churches and societies. Consequently, pride is the great disturber of them and the cause of most dissensions and breaches in the church. So church family, while we enjoy a great degree of unity, let us be on guard against this in our own hearts and in our family. Peter commands God's people to humbly submit to their leaders that he has placed over them in the church. He commands God's people to clothe themselves with humility in their relationships within the church, with one another. And finally, he writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. So thirdly, we see humble dependence on our caring, almighty God. This is our third command in this passage we humble ourselves under his mighty hand this is a reference to his power his sovereign authority and control his wisdom 
For those who knew their Old Testament, this would recall God's mighty deeds of deliverance, of being able to open a sea and provide dry land to walk on. This is a God of power. And he's powerful for you. Just as Christ also suffered and then was exalted, so his followers are on that same path. This life might be filled with hardships, but exaltation is promised. And just as we see it modeled in Christ's life, we will receive that same reward of exaltation and honor. Peter then commands, humble yourselves, casting all your cares on him. This last phrase, casting all your cares, this is telling us how we are to humble ourselves. This isn't a separate idea. This is a subordinate clause. Casting all your cares. That's how you humble yourself. The word casting carries the weight of the imperative. God's telling us to throw our cares, our anxieties, our worries, our fears onto him. Just picture with me if you would. If I'm playing catch with the football with my boys, the game involves me throwing the ball to them. You understand what catch looks like, right? In order for them to receive it, I have to let the ball go. I have to release it. And that's the idea here. It's simple. And yet it's hard for us to practice. We're to throw our cares onto him and hold onto them no longer. And yet so often, I'll throw my cares onto him, but take them right back. To hold on to my anxieties means I think I know best how to handle them. That's pride, isn't it? Consider how our pride is perhaps similar to a monkey trap. In Southeast Asia, many years ago, someone developed an ingenious method to catch monkeys alive and unharmed. The monkey trap they developed was very simple. You've probably heard of it before. They would take a pot with a wide bottom and a narrow opening and bury that pot in the ground. They'd place inside that pot a piece of fruit or nuts and curiosity or hunger would attract the monkey to reach inside. And with an empty hand, he could get his hand inside that narrow opening. But once he filled his fist full of food, he can't get it back out and he refuses to let go. He's trapped by his own choices. The monkey sees the hunter approaching, but instead of letting go of the food, he holds on tighter and tries harder and harder to dislodge its arm and that fistful of food. He's choosing his own trap. That's what our pride does. When we insist on carrying our own anxieties, when we cling to control over our life in pride, We become trapped by our own devices. You see, worry is secret pride, hiding unbelief, either in God's love in the midst of the hardships or in an unbelief that he is able or powerful to do anything about them. As one writer says, it's not that humility is a virtue that earns grace, but humility is a confession of emptiness that receives grace. It's an open hand. It's not clinging to God, do this, this way. God tells us these are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble 
at my word. Now, what does that look like specifically to cast our cares? Listen as I read Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7. Paul commands, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, every one of those circumstances, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. What a parallel command to 1 Peter 5. The resource God gives us to cast our cares away is prayer. And if you study Philippians 4, there's three different kinds. That's how we cast our care. But prayer is intrinsically humble. It's self-emptying. It's opening my hands. Prayerlessness is intrinsically arrogant. By action, it's saying, I don't need you. Peter motivates us to humility by reminding us that God fights against our pride, that he offers grace to the humble. That final motivation then comes in the last phrase of verse 7. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And here we reach the foundation of these verses on humility. Just think of what this verse is saying to us. God wants to take all of your burdens, all the concerns, the worries, the anxieties in your life, and vigorously, without hesitation, throw them onto himself. He can carry them. He's saying you cannot. He's willing to carry them. He's eager to take them from you. So give them to him. Give them to him. He says cast all of them onto him. Why? The last phrase of verse 7 is perhaps the most precious. It can be translated as your care becomes his care concerning you. He's saying, I am concerned about your concerns. I am thinking of you. In spite of the fact that I am God reigning supremely, sovereignly, perfectly, over seven and a half billion people on this earth, I'm telling you this morning, I care about your concerns. And I insist you turn them over to me. Matthew 6, 25 through 34, Jesus commands his followers not to be anxious. That'd be worth spending some time meditating on this week. But in that passage, he highlights three things about the character of God. Jesus tells us to meditate on the capacity of God, God's ability. And he uses this illustration that God has the capacity to faithfully meet the needs of the smallest, most seemingly insignificant birds of the field. He is paying attention even to something, some creature that we think is inconsequential. He knows them. He knows what they need. And he cares for you even more than he does for them. If he's so reliable and loving to them, how much more will he be to you? Second, God marvelously and brilliantly clothes the fields with flowers and grass. He's skillful and abundant in his care. He's creative in his provision. He delights in his own providence, in his own provision of the field how much more so for you 
If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally, open-handedly. And finally, Jesus says that God is fully aware of your every need. But Jesus, like Peter, adds a rebuke for us in our worries. Jesus says it this way, Oh, you of little faith. Do you see how pride and unbelief are linked here? Why is worry inherently proud? Because it's an expression of a small view of God and a big view of self. It's revealing a heart fixated on my understanding of my needs and my problems rather than resting in God's ability and care for me. When I worry, I'm figuring out how things should work out as if I am God. I want control, but that's not my place. When I'm convinced of God's ability and God's care, I will not worry. When I'm doubting his ability and his care for me, then I cling to my worries because I secretly, blindly, and wrongly believe in that moment that I can handle them better than he. Now, so often in the past, I've thought of this passage in very individual terms. That was the way I applied it so often. This is about me casting my cares on him. But Peter gives these commands to congregations. He's telling individual believers to do that within earshot of all the other believers. Look back again at these verses and note that the pronouns are all plural. He cares for you all. The setting is corporate. So I think it's completely legitimate then to at least say one part of an application of this is that we're to share these burdens with one another. Doesn't that seem consistent with scripture? Certainly we have individual responsibility to cast our cares on him, but we don't have to do that alone. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You need other believers to help you cast your cares. And God provides them in a church family. Have you found it to be true in your walk with the Lord that one of the primary ways that you tangibly know that he's caring for you is through the care of another believer in your life? Isn't it true that we regularly need other believers to help, with, help us walk with God through our pain and suffering? It can be proud to close your mouth and not share what's going on in your heart. Can I again urge you to lean into this means of God's grace to you? I'm learning that I need to be much more open about the things I'm struggling with and lean into the means of God's people helping care for me, speak truth into my life, pray with me. As you're fighting to humbly depend on God instead of wrongly, even arrogantly clinging to your anxieties, you need God's people. In order to faithfully pursue humility, we're to employ all the ordinary means of grace. You've heard them all this morning. Study his sovereign might and steadfast love in his word. That's what Jesus does in Matthew 6. We're to remind ourselves from the study of his word just how capable and faithful and loving he is. We're commanded to cast our care on him in humble dependence through prayer. And these are corporate 
commands. We do both in the fellowship of other brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the best ways to do so at Suba Road, where you can do it every week, is to join yourself, faithfully invest in the lives of others in a life group. The passage this morning calls us to cultivate humility by resting in his care. Encouraging his readers to cultivate humility, Ed Welch writes, remember that everything you have has been given to you. You didn't earn your life, your breath, or your talents. Allow emerging aches, pains, and physical disabilities to remind you that you are indeed wasting away. Enjoy being needy before God and others. That's a wonderful place to be, for his grace is sufficient. You certainly cannot survive without God's moment-to-moment care. And you cannot survive without other members of the body of Christ. So he encourages, identify yourself as the Lord's slave and delight in that. And remember that when you aim to find anything in which to boast, remember that you cannot boast in that and in Jesus at the same time. You can only do one or the other and the gospel urges you to cast all your care on him because he cares for you. I want to close by asking how do you know that's true? How do you know he cares for you? Why can I trust that he is loving and good when I'm facing extreme pressure and hardship when my life circumstances seem to be so far out of my control and it doesn't seem like things are going right? How can I know he cares? Well, on the cross, Christ humbly submits himself to death for your pride, for your sin, so that you might be in that relationship with him. Those who are truly secure in God's love for them at the cross grow in humility and receive his grace. Humility thrives in the shadow of the cross. Romans 8 tells us, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? True humility before God expresses itself above all in an unwavering trust in him. And in a confidence in his unfailing love. To be overwhelmed with anxiety is to be concerned with self rather than with Christ. So you have a choice. We have a choice to make. Will you choose humility and rest in his grace or choose your anxiety and pride and be resisted? We're called to turn to our Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word, for how well and clearly and wisely it diagnoses the needs of our heart. Lord, this is a passage, a topic, a text that speaks directly to where we all live. We are all excellent at meditating on our cares and our concerns. Help us to grow in our ability to meditate on who you are. Help us to grow in prayer, depending on your grace, seeking it in humility. Father, you offer grace to the humble. So may we turn from our pride. May we recognize your care. May we know that you are mighty. Help us to respond 
with humility this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.